my wife used to, comp- you know, always ask me in our early years, why won't you take a walk with me? She loved going out for walks. And, and finally, you know, I, I said, you know, I'm going to do that. And, you know, I thought I was so proud of myself. And, you know, I'm going out on a walk with my wife until she said, did you have to bring the basketball with you? Uh, I mean, I just, walking was just like, I, I needed to do something else. So, uh, but you know, over the years, we've just learned to adjust and, and get along, and now we walk and drive and pray together, and those are uh, some amazing things. I love the counsel, not going to bed angry, scriptural. Um, that's, a, that's a very key thing. I think I can count twice in our 43 years of marriage, where we got so exhausted in the argument, we just fell asleep and uh, never worked it out, and then woke up the next morning, oh no, we didn't settle it. And, uh, but by then it was like the Lord, you know, touches your heart with those things. And um, a man was asked a secret, you know, uh, at a, his 50th anniversary, he was asked the secret of a long marriage. And he said, well, largely I decided that when it was a rough time, when I just needed to go cool off, I would take a long walk outside. Uh, so basically I've lived an outdoor life. He said. <laughs> well... You know, I love one of the women who was asked, you know, what was her secret? And she said, well, I decided I would take, I would give my husband a pass on 10 of the things that he did that annoyed me that I wouldn't let him get. So I I wrote a list of 10 things. If he did these things, I would immediately just, okay, I can live with it. I'm okay. It's not a big deal. And uh, so they asked, well, what were the 10? He goes, she goes, well, I kind of forgot, but I know that when he does something, I just tell him, lucky for you, that's one of the 10. Well, listen, last uh, night we, we looked at a few things, but I think the key was for me, and it's always true for marriage, it's, it's God doesn't make promises to couples. I, you know, I, I didn't say it exactly that way, but that's exactly what the theme was last night. The idea is that you, God makes promises to you as individuals. So when you go to him with those promises he's made and seek him and know that your fulfillment will be in him, then you will splash out that the Lord's love and grace to your spouse. In a way, I mean, it was expressed in here in the term of mission. I loved how that was put. This is our mission to, you know, uh, help that flower unfold, to, un- um, to bloom each other. And to the idea that this is your assignment. God has given you a responsibility to be that person for your spouse. So... I think of that, you know, just, I want you to look at your spouse right now. Just take, just look, gaze into her eyes across the table, right? Just look. And I want you to look at each other, husband and wife, and realize you, I want you to say this. I, I'm called to be, to, I'm assigned to God to make you the best person that I can be and encourage you in any way I can. Just express something like that to your spouse because that really is your assignment. Don't get in an argument doing it, please. Don't hold it against him or her after. <laughs> this, is, this is a powerful truth, and if we remember that, we realize how life is so short. I, I think of where 43 years of marriage went. I still am blown away. Where did the time go? I look at myself in the mirror. I go, who is this guy? Of course, I know as you get older, uh, I know the secret between a lot, with a lot of the gray hairs I see here is that uh, the secret is you're really teenagers hiding out in older bodies. Because that's the truth. We actually, in the Lord, when you're growing in Him, you get younger. There's something renewed every day. I feel younger and more encouraged more than ever as I just keep seeking Him. Uh, But when I look in the mirror, I go, who are you? (laughs) The body doesn't correspond with that. But one day, we'll get the body squared away. The Lord will take care of that. All right, just just by way of um, remembering some things that the Lord spoke to us last night. The name of Jesus is really key in every area. That why his name is Jesus? Because sin is our problem. He will save his people from their sins. Because we're worth it. And, and that's the thing that Satan will just break you down. When he tempts you, pulls you away, and you sin, then he beats you up and shames you and guilts you, you know, for the rest of your days about that thing. He accuses you. But the Lord basically says, no, you are worth it. It doesn't matter how much sin has defiled you. You still retain your value. And the third thing is that you can't save yourself. And this is true. When you think about marriage, it's really the, I called it the impossible mixture. 
It really is. You, you, you married a sinner. You know that, right? A, a sinner marrying a sinner. And this, how do you take this new or this, this idea of the two become one flesh and translate that into after the fall, we intrinsically were divided, these little bundles of self on the throne. And when you become a believer, of course, you take back off your throne. You let the Lord reign there. But we often kick him off the throne. We take back that charge and we don't get it right. And this is where forgiveness and patience and kindness comes in. Those things of love that are so key. In fact, uh, you know, when you think about agape love and the love chapter, I mean, just consider this one thought. You've got this amazing definition of love. This agape, this God's love, this, this transcendent love. And you think about defining it. You know, you, you might think of, oh, man, you know how the poets would put it. I'll climb the highest mountain. I'll swim the deepest sea for thee. Will you take out the garbage? No, I'm kind of tired, honey. <laughs> you know, the reality is it's in the simpler graces. It's in the simple little things. Love is, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. Love is kind. Now think about those two simple graces. Why are they so hard? to live with somebody that you've married. And, and, and we should not be surprised, though, because before, before you got married, you, you could manage your time and your amount of, you know, you put your best, best foot forward when you're together 24-7. I mean, that is where it really gets challenging. I went to college with my uh, best friend. We roomed in our dormitory after three weeks this best friend all through high school, we could not stand each other because we never lived together. We never had to deal with, you know, each other in that level, and we just got annoyed with each other. So are you surprised that when you got married that there were things that annoyed you, and it, and it seemed like you had to constantly put those annoyances out of your mind, that they, they kept just coming up. Why, why does he do this? Why did she do this? And it's just because you never spent that much time together. Now it's like you're in this crucible working things out. And that takes time. In fact, that's part of the assignment. The Lord, is, uh, the Lord gave you your spouse because he knew you and what you needed to learn how to love and to learn how to respect. And that's really the subject uh, in this grace-filled marriage that the Lord has called us to. If you turn to Colossians chapter 3, I'm going to look at some things uh, to follow up on this you know, marriage is often without a context, and Colossians gives it the context uh, that is so essential. In fact, uh, what strikes me about this context more than anything is what he says before he gets to the subject of marriage, and of course, I already alluded to that fact last time we uh, opened this up, that every context of marriage, there seems to be this talk about the work of the Spirit of God and your walk personally uh, before he gets to the subject matter of dealing with those issues. All right, here we go. Colossians chapter 3. I'm just going to read a few things here in chapter 3. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. So we have that hope, this great hope. No matter what happens, we have that. It's like it's in the bank. The Lord has accomplished our salvation. So therefore, while we're still in this world, put to death your members which are on the earth. Now, this is not the same thing as you've heard people say, I need to be crucified. I need to crucify my flesh. Um, no, you don't, actually. You're, you were crucified with Christ, past tense. What you need to put to death is the old habits of that old life that still hang on. They're no longer the real you. You were once a slave of sin. You couldn't be happy without sinning. That was me. I mean, Friday nights were made for sin, and I, I you know, in my rebellion against God... 
I, I wanted to do as much as I could, you know, to satisfy my lusts, my cravings, my flesh. I was a slave to it. And I had to work hard. Listen, having the, the right number of people, the right people, the people to keep away from the party, to, to end here, to do this, and, and so that on Monday you talk about how cool it was. But I was a slave to it. And then I became a believer, and I became a slave of righteousness. Now, I can't be happy unless I do the right thing. And uh, sometimes I don't do the right thing. And I'm grieved, and I go, oh, Lord, I've got to settle this. So this whole new thing has happened. So those old things that do pop up as you're growing in your walk, you put off. Put off all those things. Put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you once, you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you put off the old man with his deeds and to put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor June or circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. When I think of all those things to put off, I think, you know, there were some things that when I first became a believer, immediately were eradicated. I had a filthy language, I had a filthy mouth. I prided myself on how many words I could string together that would shock people's ears. And when something happened, they'd just come out in a big flood. Blah, 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 just like I, and I was so impressed with myself how I could really make it sound. The wildest thing happened, I just a brand new believer, I knew something, I, I wasn't even sure something happened in me. I knew that God did something, you know, he, he answered my prayer and I was his, I, I, I didn't understand it fully, but I remember walking in my dorm and I stubbed my toe and I went, ow, and, and all I could think of was, ow, I knew what normally would come out of my mouth and ow wasn't one of those words. And I thought, what happened? Well, the Lord immediately took that away. Other things were a longer process. Now, some of my friends, you know, the things that I was still struggling with, God took that away from them immediately, but they still struggled with their language. God worked differently in us. But in every respect, the things that he didn't immediately take away, if we didn't manage it, it could slip back in, even if it was gone, or we had to put it down because that's no longer me. I don't want that. I, I with that anymore. I grieved that I did that. I said that. I, Lord, help me. So then in verse 12, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Now that is a lot easier done to strangers, if you've noticed. You're always conscious of how you are around people and putting your best foot forward, but it seems like you come home and you let all the junk just hang out as if, you know, this is your castle and you can say what you want and, and whatever flies. You know, I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. You better be careful. You don't have a whole lot of pieces left. But the reality is, here is what you do. This, this is a marriage context. Put on Christ. Put on, above all these things, put on love, he says in verse 16, or verse 14. Put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All of that is the framework, I believe, for a relationship. Uh, all the talks on marriage without this context are out of context. Th this is really what God is doing in you, so then, then you come to the next passage, and he talks about marriage in the home and and, um, and, you know, there's basic guidelines in that. There's not a lot. There's very simple guidelines. Wives, verse 18, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 
Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. And then he goes on about children and fathers and work and that sort of thing. But the idea is these simple little rules. It's the framework. It's an adventure, marriage, within that framework. Outside that framework, it's a nightmare. And let me tell you, I deal with a lot of the nightmares. Uh, I deal with the crazy stuff. I I remember, (laughs) well... One couple that were so enraged with each other, I mean, they were just livid in this. I mean, I didn't, I, I told them honestly, I said, unless you turn your ship around, you guys are not going to make it. And I told the guy, you know, you're, a, you're 100% U.S. prime beef jerky, the way I see it, the way you're talking to your spouse. And, and I said to her, I said, you know, you're not giving him any respect. And just in a f- short conversation, I said, the very, very basic foundation of a marriage and rules of love and respect is not there. So I said, I don't give you much hope. I'm sorry. Unless you turn this around. And I kind of left the concept. That was, that's the way we ended. And they went out a little bit shocked. And uh, I really didn't give them much hope. I honestly didn't. I said, there's no way. The amazing thing is God, be, by telling them how much of a bad case they were, they both took a serious look at themselves and realized they needed to turn their ship around. The next time I saw them was 10 years later. They were visiting out in New Jersey, because this was in California that I counseled them as a young pastor. They were visiting New Jersey, and I thought, what, are they still together? I didn't even, and they were, I could not believe the transformation. He was the most kind and patient. She was the most respectful. It was like they were madly in love with each other, and I thought, wow. That's amazing. God can do that. And that's really what it comes down to. You make up your mind. What are you going to do? Without the rules, think about it. Would you go to a zoo if there were no cages? I mean, you might be on the menu with some of those animals. Would you, would you be interested in a sporting event if there were no rules? Can you imagine how boring that would be? Like everybody's just doing whatever they want on the field. It makes no sense. That's how people think freedom is. Freedom is doing whatever I want to do. No, freedom is being able to do the right thing and enjoy it the most. That's where the Lord gave us freedom. He gave us the freedom to do the right thing. Before that, we had no capacity to. We were trapped as in sin. We could not escape. We could not be other than our nature. The leopard cannot change his spots. But the Lord can change the heart. And when he does, now you practice this new person. Even if you still feel the old is dominant, it's because you're giving it more space than it really deserves. You've got to make up your mind. Who are you? And God is giving your test case in the crucible of marriage, that person that you have to live with 24-7, that just like I say, any, if you could take your best friend and live with him for a week and you'd be annoyed with each other. So think of how hard it is in marriage. That's why it is so hard because you're living with another sinner, but now you've got to learn how to get along. And this is the key. So the rules are amazing when they're kept and you enter into his rest. And your spouse, think of your spouse as a canvas that the Lord is using you to paint on, to be a part of the design and to bring out the best but sometimes, even in a, in a, in a portrait, I envision you know, the Lord is designing us and he's beautifully making us his portrait that he's making us more like him. But an enemy comes in and throws mud on the painting. But with a few strokes of the brush, the Lord is able to take that mud and maneuver it into the most beautiful backdrop and the most beautiful contrast. So God can take our messes and turn them into his perfect plan. I, I do remember, though, as a young uh, couple, a lot more volatility, a lot more intense fellowship, I call it. You know, I remember the great brownie wars that we had, believe it or not. You know, we both love chocolate. I mean, I have a T-shirt for my wife that says, just give me some chocolate and nobody will get hurt. But I like chocolate, too. So we, we, we'd make brownies, but I would like to double it. I wanted to put like a thick thing of frosting on already a rich, you know, chocolate with with lots of chocolate chips, double, triple the chocolate chips and the brownies and the, oh man, it was just, it was chocolate overload. But you know, she's like conscious of, you know, 
being petite, and I don't want to put that frosty on. It's already chocolatey enough, and we'd get into a battle. We'd actually get into a knockdown, drag-out argument. You don't respect me. Well, you don't want what I want. We, back and forth. And none of us were smart enough to figure out, just put half of the brownies with frosting on them, right? I mean, we look back and we go, how foolish it was. But you know it's true. Most of the arguments you get into, they don't really make sense. It's all about our enhanced sense of ourself that's been offended and that's all that matters is self is on the throne. So when the Lord gives you that fulfillment and he's deepening himself in you, all of a sudden you're not worried about yourself. You're thankful for his love, his forgiveness, his kindness towards you and now you want to express that kindness even if it's not deserved by your spouse. I mean, after all, isn't that the Lord toward us? How much undeserved grace he gives us. Do you give undeserved grace to your spouse? They don't deserve your kindness and your treatment after what they said and did. But yet you, you've, been, you've received grace, now you give grace. Let me tell you the power of that. It's disarming. A, a soft answer turns away wrath. You see, this is the problem with sin in marriage. It's not so much sin. You know, sin happens. You know that, right? Sin happens. You say something unthoughtful, uh, thoughtless. You, you say something unkind or you're annoyed with something and you just, you blah, out there. It comes. It happens. It's something you didn't plan it. It just happened. You know, the real problem in marriage is not the sin that happens. It's the response to the sin that happens. Somebody says something unkind to you, your spouse says something unkind, and you're, you want to one-up them. Oh, yeah? Well, I think blah. Oh, really? Well, and then you get into this whole argument because the reaction to the sin is the real problem. And this is where when you are filled with the Spirit, when you're poked, when you're punched, when you're knocked off your guard, what you're going to spill out is grace and kindness, mercy. You know, the great brownie wars eventually ended when we began to think. I remember thinking, okay, we got in a big argument with this this time. I would say to her, you know, we don't need to put Frosty on the brownies. And she'd look at me, oh, honey, thank you. But next time, no. <laughs> the idea is you think ahead. You have to actually intentionally think ahead. But think about your own life in every area. Home maintenance, car maintenance. Uh, what happens to your home if you don't do anything? What happens to your car if you don't do anything? You don't change oil, you don't fix it, you don't take care of it. I, I mean, anything in life worth preserving, it takes intentional planning and maintenance, and so it is in a relationship. You know, sometimes guys get in the, you know, they go through, they, they let their wife have this big old wedding, and... Um, now, you, you go through the wedding, and once you say, I do, you make the mistake of thinking, I said I do, it's done, right? I remember my son-in-law, when he just got his house, we, we got this fixer up or four doors down from us, and it was just a trash, and he worked on house, so he fixed it all up, and he fixed it, it was beautiful when it was finished, and he says, oh, thank God I'm done with this. I go, oh, you're just beginning. <laughs> and that's exactly true. You're never done with maintenance. There's always something, and especially in a relationship. You know, I, I remember um, another big thing we get, you know, like she, backing the car out of our driveway was a little tricky in our home in Jackson because we had to, it was, it was kind of turning, and she had to turn and back up in a turn. And I'd watch her back up a little bit and go forward, back up a little bit, go forward, you know, trying to figure this out. And I remember just thinking, you know, get out of the car. Let me show you how this is done. I get in the car, and I just, I want to show off how fast I can do it. I hit the fence. <laughs> and instead of, and as, and as impatient as I was, I deserved her to tell me off right there. Oh, yeah, see what you get. That's what you get. Instead, she comes over, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. She was so kind and patient with me. I didn't deserve that. But you know what? Those things stick with you. It's like, I didn't deserve that. How kind you were. I didn't deserve that. And that made me that much more appreciate her and love her. And I want to tell you something. Soft answer is so important, so key. <laughs> Except wallpaper. Can I say a little bit about wallpaper? I hate wallpaper. 
My wife loves wallpaper. Our house in, our first house was, um, well, it was our second house. We moved to New Jersey, first house in New Jersey. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It had no wallpaper, and it was nice. And I went away on a trip, and I came back, and she wallpapered the living room. The living room with these big old flowery patterns, the whole living room. And I looked at it, and I go, what? <laughs> Honey, this, seriously? It was hard. I, I had to suck it up. And it was fine until we moved the furniture around and she did not wallpaper behind the couch. I'm sorry for throwing you under the bus, honey. We were, we were a young couple. Um, I'd go away and there'd be another wallpaper, there'd be this and that, and every time I travel, and I finally threatened her, you do not wallpaper anything else. But by the time we left that house, I can't even tell you how much it cost to get that wallpaper off the walls to sell that thing. But you know what, as I look back at that, it's also one of those things where it's precious. It's like something she likes. She liked decorations. She liked that. And so I've lost the decoration wars in our house for 43 years. And I can say happily have lost that because it's important to her. I mean, we have totally different. I mean, I would come in just clean German lines of very plain, nothing on the walls. And she's the complete opposite. And I have lost that battle because a happy wife, as you heard, is a happy life. All right. So, look, the end of the day is you're being pruned to bear fruit together. Uh, this is about being pruned. God uses people to prune us. He uses circumstances to prune certain wild growth and things that we think are okay. And God, we bounce that off of our spouse. And they go, yeah, not on my watch. And we're like, all right, so that gets cut off here and that gets cut off. And sometimes I don't like it, but in the end... More fruit is produced. I mean, it's an adventure. All of this, consider bringing the best out in your spouse. All the insecurities and egos need to be checked at the door. I always say this to our leaders in church. You know, check your egos at the door. This isn't about you. We're here to serve God. That's essentially, we're here to encourage them and build them up. And Jesus came and he laid his life down. And that's essentially the, the big challenge. So all of this is, the biggest challenge is you. So when you read Colossians 3 here and you see... Uh, our response to his sovereignty, you know, which he clearly presents in the first two chapters of Colossians, is now therefore, here, put, put off that old, you know, and put on these new characteristics. This is the real you now. This is the real you. It's hiding there. When you've trusted the Lord, you've received this new heart. But you've got to let it come through now, and you've got to be intentional with that. All of this focuses on, you know, the, in chapter uh, 2, verse 9 and 10, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you've been made complete. All these two truths form the whole message that he gives. All of his deity is in bodily form in Jesus, and in him you have been made complete. There's nothing more you need to add to his work. Now you're responding to what he has done by letting that new man come out. And I can tell you, I went from an arrogant, full of myself, yes, even as a pastor, super spiritual, full of myself. Uh, things would annoy me about my wife, and I, would, I, I knew all the things that were right. I'd come home you know, from work, and I'd notice everything that was out of place. And why, wait, what, why didn't you do I thought you were going to take care of that. And, you know, Kids, big arguments would ensue because I'd come home and I'd complain about this and that. I was a perfectionist and uh, honestly intolerable as I look back. But I, I just thought, I'm, I want perfection. I want to do it right. And this is wrong. And obviously it's wrong. I mean, are you going to argue that's right? You know, I'd come off with these all super spiritual, annoying arguments. And it took a while for me to wake up to realize uh, when my wife told me one time, every time she heard the car in the driveway, she tense up. And I'm like, really? I do that to you? What a jerk. And I began to change. I began to say, you know, I, I had to literally, before I got home, I had to intentionally tell myself, okay, now you're going to see something that you don't like and just shut up and don't say anything and first greet her. And by the way, one of the best things you can do when you come home from work, guys, the kids are running up to you, Daddy, 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 can I say something? Walk right by your kids. 
Give your wife a big hug and kiss. Tell your kids, hold on a second. You're showing your kids what's priority. And that's a very powerful thing because so often, you know, the kids, daddy, daddy, well, we like the ego or the attention. Oh, yeah, my wife isn't meeting me at the door. Oh, husband, 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 you know. <laughs> so the kids doing this, yeah, I like you kids. And so I'm, gonna throw, I'm throwing myself to the kids, right? Getting on the floor, playing with them. Oh, yeah, I have a wife over there. But instead, you know what a man does to show his children what's most important. He, he says, hold on right now, hold on right now. My daughter used to come and run off the little ledge and jump into my arms when I come in. I couldn't even put my stuff down. And that was wonderful. I love it as I look back. But I, I wish I had the presence of mind to say, hold that, honey. I need to give your wife, your mom a hug and a kiss. And you know what? When I would give my, my wife a hug and a kiss, the kids would just want to be a part of that. They just cling to us. They'd be, they want to suck off that love that gives them such security. And this is powerful in a family. So essentially, you have to be intentional. So I'd intentionally think of all the things I didn't need to worry about and come home, I'd see it, I'd see it, I'd see it, but shut up, shut up, shut up. And I'd compliment her about the things that I did see done. And it was like, what a difference the atmosphere of the home took on. And I, that once arrogant, full of myself thing, eventually woke up and realized, wow, in all of this choice and intention that I did, it wasn't that, look how good I'm doing. I actually realized I, she, my wife saved me. She's, I used to think of her, I told some of the pastors, you know, I used to, when I first got married, we, I already had a vision. I was already in ministry. I was going to go plant a church. I had this whole thing. And, and in the back of my mind, I didn't say this ever out loud, you know, but in the back of my mind, I thought, you know, my wife must be pretty happy. She married a pastor and leader, and we're going, and I'm bringing her along to this ministry God's given me. And I, I'd never say that out loud, but I actually secretly thought that until one day the Lord woke me up and said, hey, stupid, you thought you rescued her. She rescued you. And I remember when it happened. I was lying in bed early in the morning. This thought came to me, and I looked over her lying there. I'm ashamed to say it was like in our 20th year of marriage. It took me that long to figure this out. And I just said, you're my princess charming. <laughs> you rescued me. She's like, huh, what, what? <laughs> She's still sleeping. <laughs> you know, I, I got to tell you, but you know, the amazing thing, and my wife went from this disillusion and distrust and, and just this, this feeling of, you know, could never be pleased enough, you know, she could never please me enough to this amazing, wonderful woman of prayer. And in many ways, you know, the assignment she had to deal with me, God rewarded her as she prayed and she prayed. There are oftentimes, you know, really the secret is that you're going to come into some impossible conflicts. And prayer is so amazing. We have a little special needs grandchild that was adopted. And um, there's absolutely no consoling him, no fixing him. No, and when he gets into this funk, he is impossible to deal with. And, of course, my wife, she figured this out. When he's just totally incorrigible, inconsolable, angry, frustrated, and he marches up to bed and he's like just has an attitude... She'll go up and he'll first just look at her with this look, don't talk to me, don't look at me. And she'll just start reading the Bible to him and praying. And the next thing, he's like calms down. What could not, no one could do, the word of God and prayer does. And I tell you, that is the secret in our marriage as well, you know. But marriage is not the goal. Remember, it's the tool. God is using your spouse as a tool to shape you into the person he wants you to be. Now, again, doesn't mean that um, you're going to be successful because if the person you're trying to encourage doesn't want to be encouraged, versus challenges there, and that's all part of your learning, too, to wait. But here's the, these two verses after all of this foundation that's laid is wives submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the, in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. The, I love how Colossians... Paul just states it very plain because he's already laid the foundation for your individual understanding of who you are. Because if you look at marriage as the goal, 
you're going to never be satisfied. You're, ne- you're always going to be frustrated. You're in process. It's a tool to make you fit for what God has in store for eternity. Every little thing you, look, like I said last night, you, when you die, you leave behind all that you have, but you take with you all that you are. Who you are, all the stuff of life and the scratches in the car and the disappointments here and the loss of money there and all this struggle that we have and marital fights and arguments about stuff are really so empty because ultimately God allows those things in your lives to shape you, to form you for eternity that we can't even fathom what his plan is. So God uses wives and husbands to minister to each other and the simple rules go dramatically against the very root of sin that started in the garden. Eve acted independently of her husband when she took of that fruit. Adam, he transgressed plainly against a clear understanding of what he was doing by taking that bite out of that fruit, and sin entered the world. So I look at this picture, the Adam was formed first, then God created the woman to be that, that complement to him, that helpmate, and the two would become one flesh. And that this was the perfect design God had. But when sin entered now, the wife's temptation is to usurp the authority of her husband. So she's called to yield to his leadership against every fiber of her being because the sin nature wants to be in control. And the husband who idolized his wife now has to truly love her and do what's best for her and best for the family not thinking of himself was adam thinking of himself i don't want to lose her uh, she's this beautiful gift the lord gave me and put her before god which actually is a twisting or a perversion of love you know when you love selfishly it's not love at all Lust is, back the opposite of love. What is the opposite of love? Most of us think easily hate. No, it's not the opposite of love. The opposite of love is lust. Love is the ultimate giving of oneself for the best of another. Lust is the epitome of desire and grasping for yourself to please yourself. Those are the opposites. And how twisted the world is talking about love, right? All the love songs that you sing and all the love songs that we grew up with, They're all twisted versions of self-love rather than true love and wanting the best for that partner. So our relationship with the Lord here affects this relationship powerfully. And again, you know, think of all the social problems in the world that occur when husbands don't love, thinking of themselves for it, when wives don't yield, independent rebellious, and children don't obey, or fathers don't have patience with children, or employees don't work hard, or employers abuse their employees. I mean, he's going to outline all these relationships, and all of them affect society hugely. In fact, most of the time, it's not the sins of commission that get you into trouble. It's the sins of omission. I have a little boy who says to his mom, Mom, will I get in trouble for something I didn't do? Of course not, honey. He goes, good, because I didn't do my homework. (laughs) See, clever, right? But think about how many ways we do that in other subtle ways in our relationship. What we leave out. When a man says, well, I'm not hurting anybody. Oh, yes, you are. You're destroying civilizations by living for yourself. You have no idea the potential that God has given you to impact somebody else. And it might be a chain reaction of just showing kindness to one person and then that kindness impacts them to follow the Lord and they become, you know, an evangelist in some country and a whole nation is changed because of that simple act of kindness. You have no idea leaving out. I'm afraid to leave out any possible opportunity I have what my role might be in it, even if it's just showing some kindness, breaking into somebody's world, encouraging them in some way. How much more in a marriage? So this all runs into this place where uh, wives, by the way, it's simply uh, true true spirituality is practical 
False spirituality is often inept at simple graces like love and patience. It comes off as knowledge. It's puffed up. But this is the key. It's very practical. So wives, submit. So I didn't leave a lot of time to go over this role or the husband's role, but I just want to sum up a few things. First of all, the idea of submission is a standing joke in the world because they don't understand the word. Either they think of a husband as an absolute king and the wife is, you know, children are completely under control, or they think that, well, I'm not going to submit to my husband until he's 100% uh, in the Lord's in right, and, and I won't need to respond to him unless that's the case. But no, the idea is that God has given this balance. What's, what's your recourse if your husband reneges on his role and isn't loving you the way he should? Well, that's what a young woman thought to herself. Her husband was a complete domineering jerk, and she wanted out and was going to divorce him and decided, as she read a passage in the scriptures, she needed to forgive, and so she needed to stay in the marriage. She, God hates divorce, so she stuck it out. And God did an amazing thing. God began to change her husband. He began to notice the difference of, you know, seeing his favorite things, foods prepared for him and her thoughtfulness and kindness. Even when he was impatient and sharp, she'd speak softly in response. And he's like, what is going on? And eventually his heart got moved. And, you know, she, her whole church would be one desire her whole life was, oh, I just love for my husband to go to church with me just once. Just once, Lord. Just let him go to church with me once. But he had nothing. He wanted nothing to do with the Bible, nothing to do with God. But God changed his heart. He not only goes to church, he became a pastor of the church. And now she goes to church with a lot more than she ever wanted to. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. But, you know, the wild thing is, this is a pastor of a Calvary Chapel in Texas, and, you know, that's how it started. His wife won him without a word just by her, her yieldedness, her kindness, her applying these things. See, you have no idea. Jesus came in the form of a servant and changed the world. He did not come down as the emperor or the president. He came down as a servant and he changed the world. Ladies, you have no idea the influence you can have. When my wife talks about submission, she has a simple way of defining it. Just duck and let God hit him. <laughs> All right? Okay, honey, that's what you want. And then the Lord beats me up. And it's amazing how God works that out. But the order of creation, look, it sends us back to Genesis. God, you can't, you can't have two heads in a home. You have one head and one heart. And uh, one illustration we found, we, we took a cruise with our radio ministry one time, and I'll never forget, a couple that was in our church were actually national ballroom champions, uh, ballroom dancing champions. And... So they had made an agreement with the cruise ship to be able to use this thing. We're going to give all of us ballroom dancing lessons. And my wife would have nothing of that, right? I said, come on, honey. We've got to be supportive. You know, I'm not dancing. I'm not dancing. So she just thought it was all just, you know, worldly. And, the, and the, until this couple got up and explained how ballroom dancing is a perfect picture of perfect leading and perfect submitting. And any ballroom dancers here or did ballroom dancing? Anybody? Oh, come on. It's got to be. All right. You are all uncultured. No. <laughs> we, we never did it either. But when, when he got done explaining this and showing how when the man leads and the, white, and the woman perfectly submits to that, it's this amazing, beautiful dance. But if two try to lead, it's a disaster. She, they actually got my wife and I at ballroom dancing. We actually learned a lesson, and it was really funny. I could, I've got two left feet. I could do it now. But at the end of the day, it was a great illustration. And consider leadership in general. An army without a general or football with, you know, playing football without a quarterback or a committee without a chairman. It doesn't mean the right person or the best person is going to be in that leadership position. But if you don't respect the leadership position, you're never going to accomplish anything. The extreme interpretations of submission, though, are, you know, uh, crazy. There's some people out there that actually put a halo around wives submitting their husbands as if everything, no matter what he says, is golden. No, it's kind of like submission to government. I submit to government 
if they don't tell me to do something against God's will. In fact, if I wanted to really express this, when it says render to Caesar, and I got a lot of this in my ear during the COVID thing when we were opened against the governor's rules, you know, aren't you supposed to submit to government? I, I simply responded by saying, I am. I'm rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's because our Caesar is the Constitution. I'm rendering to the Constitution and I'm going to render to God what is God's. And I knew that this was tyrannical, all of the stuff that was happening, and I, I couldn't live by that lie, and I had, to, I had to respectfully rebel against that. But the end of the day is, you know, this yieldedness is important. She, she gives her husband the preeminence, not passively, not just a wallflower, you know, whatever you want to do, but she's not guilty of being independent, but she's not guilty of being passive. And I think it's a powerful lesson. So, and by the way, when it says in Ephesians, in everything, you know, again, it's limited to the idea of what is appropriate. In fact, there are times when my wife will resolutely say no, because she is not going to go against her conscience or do anything uncomfortable in that regard. And, I, and you know what? There's the respect of a person that the Lord gives us. In fact, how does the Lord lead us? He doesn't drive us. There is a response to his leadership and how patient he is. You know, in fact, the idea of wives submitting to the husbands, you know, sometimes, sadly, wrongly, it's the husband's first verse he memorizes when he gets married. Honey, it says right here, you know, you're supposed to submit to me. Can I say something to you? Does your wife have to submit to you, husbands? Does your wife have to submit to you? My answer for that is a simple no. She does not have to submit to you. Otherwise, it wouldn't be true biblical submission, which is always willing from the heart. You can't enforce that. You can't pull rank on her. Honey, it says right here, you have to submit to me. You know what? You better just chuck that idea out of your mind. The idea is that's got to come from her heart, just like she can't make you love her. That's got to come from his heart. So each of you have these roles that you're going to do unto the Lord and wait upon him. And when it gets to husbands love your wives, I mean, this is, this is where it really gets practical. Marriages may be made in heaven, but the maintenance on earth is a bear. And this is what we have to do. We have to learn to love, and love is laying your life down for the best of someone else. Husbands, how are you doing that? Men and women are so different. But our time is up here. I, I just want to say that praising her, encouraging her, the things I used to complain about, the Lord convicted me so much, but it wasn't enough to just not complain anymore. The Lord convicted me to positively think about what she does well and encourage her. And I noticed that she would write these little, you know, home and heart, you know, little devotional things for the, for the kids in our church when we were just getting started. And I picked up one of them one time and I read it and I'm like, wow, this is good. I started encouraging her, honey, you got to write more. You got to do more of these things. Now she not only writes, but she podcasts and she does, you know, little video casts. And I'm amazed at some of the things the Lord gives her. But you know what? I don't think she would have ever taken that step out if she, well, I tried it, she was encouraged by it that it was appreciated. So I try to study my wife and think, see what she is good at. And, and I mean, she's got such an intuition about things. There are times when it's like, wow, her insight, or she'll give me something about a situation and her insight. And I used to just kind of half listen. And now I realize the Lord has given her wisdom. And if I'm not humble enough and patient enough to hear it, I'm going to miss treasures. See, we men in our egos, we're so full of ourselves. We think the world starts with us. And that's why the Lord has given us our wives. We have to learn how to love because we don't naturally love. So this picture is so powerful. Um, I'm just moving along here. Well, look, how do I live this new life in this old relationship? Only by the Lord and his strength and his wisdom, if I'm, if I'm faithful to do what my role is 
and I love my wife. I want the best for her. I want to study her, how I can encourage her, lift her up, build her up, and that she can be the best that she's going to be. One day I'm going to present her to the Lord. And the same thing she's thinking in regard to me. This doesn't come naturally. You got a lot of old baggage to contend with. By, by the way, who's been married the least amount of time here? Anybody been married under a month, just out of curiosity? Oh, I'm seeing some figures. Right here in the front row, dude, dude. Come on, man. Awesome. That's awesome. How long? Two weeks? Well, you just got off the honeymoon. You're here. That's awesome. All right, who's been married the longest here? Anybody over uh, 40 years? Raise your hand. 40 years of marriage? Okay, there's quite a few. Anybody more than 45? Any over 40? 50? Oh, we got some hands. 50. 50 here, 50 here. Oh, let's just give them both a hand. That's awesome. Listen, you younger couples would be wise to in, spend time with the older couples. You'd learn so much. In fact, I want to tell you one secret Karen and I did when we first got married. Uh, we were friends because of ministry with Don and Jean McClure, and we asked them if they would be our accountability partner, our accountability couple. They'd been married for a number of years, and so we decided... Look, whenever I ha we have a problem we're not resolving, she had permission to call Jean without telling me and let her know anything. Like she could tell on me whether it was sexual or financial or just attitude or anything that was doing wrong that she wasn't getting through to me. She would be able to rat on me with Jean, but permission ahead of time. And then Jean would talk to her husband, her husband would give me a call, and I would have the same deal. I would call Don and say, my wife, blah, 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 blah. And then she'd talk to Jean, and Jean would call her. Well, in our 43 years of marriage, we only called him, like, twice. But, you know, just having that as a backdrop, I knew I had to behave myself because so many husbands are on, don't you dare say anything about me, you know, to anybody. <laughs> Listen, you don't want that. If your husband is doing that, tell him, no, we need an accountability couple. You pick the couple. I'll, let's agree on this one. Because I'll tell you, that's a powerful deterrent to stupidity. And listen, we are full of stupid. We sit in stupid. We stand in stupid. We run in stupid. We need to have some accountability to that. And I'll tell you, it really, really has been amazing. And I, I would highly encourage that. So be thinking of that accountability couple already. Lord, thank you for this time. I pray you bless uh, the time we have remaining together with the workshop as well as this evening. Thank you for this amazing group of people. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Amen.